Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 2, Episode 3. One. I can't believe they're letting you do this. Sal eyed the closed door with unveiled concern. The door itself could have been any one of a hundred doors at the Vatican. Eight feet tall, cunningly paneled wood bound with black metal hinges. Its sole claim to distinction was the number four nailed to it in gold. Asante's eyes shone. To be honest, she said, I can't quite believe it either. If you told me even a month ago that this door would open in my lifetime, I'd have called you a liar. From farther down the hall, Siggy the Swiss guard tried to look straight ahead with utterly perfect professional detachment. It didn't work very well. Sal caught him glancing their way yet again and stuck her tongue out. He jerked back to attention. Asante's new assistants buzzed about her. Francis set down a mop and bucket against the wall next to the others, consulted a thick binder, and helped another of Asante's new staff, Sister Teresa, with a crate. The junior librarians had already filled the hallway with an army's worth of cleaning and archival supplies, brooms, cleaning fluids, feather dusters. Asante held a caddy filled with an assortment of soft cloths, gloves, and tiny brushes. The usual accoutrements, Sal suspected, for entering a room that had been closed off for a few hundred years and a tiny velvet sack full of antique silver crosses, because this was no ordinary library they were walking into. This library once belonged to Team Four, magical R&D, emphasis on the once. You're not planning to move in there, are you? Sal picked up a feather duster and ran her fingers through it. She looked sidelong at the extension cords and floodlights. Don't you think that's a little much? It's not like they were wired for electricity, Sal. We don't even know if Team 4 dissolved before or after the Vatican brought in gas lighting. Asante nodded to her assistants, and they both began to pull on their dust masks and gloves. Dissolved. That was a nice name for it. Sal had poked and pried as best she could, but in the end, she'd concluded that nobody on her team was keeping secrets from her. It was just that nobody really knew what had happened to Team 4. Something terrible, Menchu had said. 
But there were a lot of kinds of terrible, ranging from they accidentally summoned a demon that ate the whole team, all the way up to that's why nobody lives in Atlantis anymore. I don't know precisely, Menchu had said when she pressed. His forehead creased. There are no records. I can only tell you what my predecessor told me. Something unspeakably terrible happened to Team 4. Or maybe they did something unspeakably terrible. It, it's really not clear. Their quarters were sealed, their members excommunicated, and the Vatican got out of the magical research business. Until recently. Sal snapped back to the present, to the quiet Vatican hallway filled with cleaning supplies. But why do you think anything in Team 4's library would even help? Years back, we found a manuscript jammed into the back of a shelf, more of a pamphlet, really, which suggests that Team 4 built the orb in the first place. So you just waltz right in, grab the blueprints, and leave? Don't be silly. We don't know how long it'll take to turn up something useful. This place could be meticulously indexed and cross-referenced, or we could be looking for a needle in a haystack. Asante sounded positively delighted at the prospect. Still, Sal gazed up at the door. It's been closed up a long time. Why the change of heart? Asante smiled politely. It's been a long time since our little corner of the Vatican was run by anyone but a cardinal raised from one of the other teams. Before now, it would have been futile even to ask. So, are you ready? All right, Sal said. She bounced on the balls of her feet. Let's see what Team Four left behind. Asante took a key from her pocket. It was a heavy, ornate thing made of gold and iron twined together. The archivist pressed it into the lock. It turned smoothly with the sort of heavy, satisfying click only found in items manufactured long before the age of plastics. Asante looked to Sal as if to gather one last drop of fortitude and then set her palm on the door and pushed. Nothing happened. Asante frowned. From down the hall, Siegfried made a sound that might have been a cough or a chuckle. Is it stuck? Francis pushed her glasses down her nose. Teresa pulled her dust mask off. It's been closed for hundreds of years, Sal said, and everybody's tried to pretend the place doesn't exist. Just a bit of rust. She sized up the door and then rammed a shoulder into it. The impact didn't even make a sound. She felt as if she'd hurled herself at a mountain. She tried again and again, fruitlessly. They don't make them like this anymore. She rubbed her shoulder. Maybe we should pour some Coke on it to eat away the rust. Francis raised an eyebrow, considering. Sister Teresa, though, looked as if Salad just suggested exhuming a pope. That door is hundreds of years old. Sal shrugged. One bit of rusted out junk is as worthless as the next, she said. Getting into the room is more important than saving a couple of middle-aged hinges. Asante ran a finger along the door frame. We could try that she said dubiously. But we all heard it unlock, and the lock would have rusted before the hinges. Maybe it's barred from the inside, Francis suggested and opened her binder. Sal didn't know what she might be looking for in there and knew better than to ask. Who would have barred it? Team Four's been dead for- Sister Teresa trailed off. She glanced at Francis, who shrugged. You mean someone might be dead in there? She drew back another step from the door. Francis, on the other hand, leaned in. Magic, she said, a little too excited. Has to be. Dr. Haddad would learn some hard lessons before long, Sal thought. Magic had a way of disillusioning even the brightest, bushiest-tailed squirrels. But the orb's existence suggested it was possible to use magic safely. 
And Team Four made the orbs, so... Asante stepped back from the door, thoughtful. You know, maybe it is magic, she said. She fished across from the velvet bag in her caddy. The silver was bright and clean. She pressed it to the door at eye level. The cross didn't tarnish the way it did in the presence of demonic power. If anything, it grew cleaner and brighter. Asante's fingers rubied around the edges. Sal felt a thrumming run from her fingertips to her toes, as if she were a plucked guitar string. Her ears rang with a silent sound that faded. Did you hear? Asante started to say, her eyebrows just beginning to draw together. The door swung open into blackness. Asante smiled like a queen before her court. Everyone else jumped back a foot or two. Sal had half expected a puff of dust, or at least a few scuttling spiders afraid of the light. But the hallway beyond the door looked utterly normal. A bit stayed for the Vatican, even. Asante lifted her caddy in one hand and a duster in the other. Excellent. Let's see what we're dealing with, she said. And then she stepped into the long abandoned quarters of Team Four. The hallway light didn't illuminate much beyond the doorway. They appeared to be in a vestibule of some kind, with another doorway on the far side. The floor was smooth, the air cool and dry. Sal's eyes had trouble adjusting to the blackness, but after a moment, she realized it was because there was nothing to see. Francis switched on a flashlight. It pointed straight down toward the floor in front of them, lit up for its first admirers in centuries. The stone was inlaid with an elaborate pentagram, because of course it was. Sal crouched at the pentagram's edge without touching it. Asante, is this dangerous? Asante walked around the symbol. Her lips moved silently. Then, no, it's here for protection against evil, she said. Fairly straightforward, and we're not evil, so. A voice came from the darkness, a breathy sound, like riffling through all the pages of an enormous book. No, my domini, vobispecies es nova. A loosely human shape stepped forward into the circle of Francis's flashlight. The figure was massive, with shoulders comic book broad and fists at least twice the size of its head. It was creamy in the light and etched with lines of writing. A single richly illuminated letter occupied the space where the creature's forehead would have been, if it had had a face. It was the letter V in ornate gold and purple. Sal shuddered for a moment, remembering tattoos made with magic ink. Ink Kong here was entirely made of magic ink. But Team Four knew what it was doing, right? Unless they didn't. And at some point, they'd clearly gotten in over their heads one way or another. Sister Teresa let out a soft, high sound. Francis trained the flashlight on Ink Kong as if she'd been born to this job. The creature stepped toward them and raised its fists high. Respondete. Asante started. It's church Latin she murmured to Sal. But that accent, I, I can hardly understand it. It seems to be some kind of guardian. I'll ask it about the orb. She addressed the thing directly. Orbe fracta tertia manus te auxilium petit. The thing stared fixedly at them for a moment, or at least its head seemed to point in their direction. It was anyone's guess if it could even see properly. It settled closer to the ground like a cat readying to pounce. What are heredity? It roared. And then a dozen things happened all at once. Asante stepped back, stumbled, and fell. Ink Kong leaped, 
On its way up, it turned into a whirlwind of pages. Francis dropped her flashlight. It rolled away under something or over something and vanished. Teresa screamed high and loud. Sal sprang in front of Asante to protect her from this paper monster. Ink Kong landed, reassembled, and punched. Sal found herself lying on the floor in the center of that pentagram, gasping from the impact. By instinct, she rolled to the side, just in time to hear a fist hammer the floor where her head had been. It sounded like a solid block of wood striking rock. Ink Kong caught Sal's ankle with an enormous hand. She kicked out. The thing didn't even try to duck. Her foot struck its head and rebounded, leaving as little damage to Kong as if she'd kicked a hundred-year-old oak. She snapped her cross from its chain and twisted up to press it to the hand that held her. Ink Kong plucked the cross from Sal's fingers. A mouth appeared in his face like a book falling open. The creature ate the cross, then pulled its fist back to deliver a punch Sal was sure would be the last. And then there was a sudden cold shock. Sal realized she was wet. Ink Kong was even wetter, the ink smearing across its surface and dripping onto her face. Francis stood a few feet away, holding an empty bucket. Sal scrabbled at the fingers surrounding her ankle, and this time pieces of them came away in big, wet clumps. Again, she shouted, get its head. Ink Kong punched at Sal once more, but this time she kicked free and regained her feet. Asante grabbed another bucket from where Teresa had let it fall and tossed the bucket over Ink Kong's head. Sal dodged around the creature, leapt on its back, and then, using teeth and fingernails, she shredded the thing. It grappled with her, thrashing, but it had trouble controlling its ruined fingers. As each scrap came away, it lost speed and power. Shient, Domini, it gasped. Finally, Sal knelt, panting over a pile of lifeless paper mache, her hands coated and sticky. Well, she said at last, that was something. Thank you, Asante said. She stared at the mound of wet paper scraps. Are you all right? Fine, Sal straightened up. I guess you can start whatever it is you meant to do in here then. Teresa bit her lip, then nudged the remains of the paper monster into a garbage bag with a broom handle. She silently fished out Sal's cross and offered it back. Um, thanks, but maybe I'll use another one until that can be cleaned off, Sal said. I want lights in that doorway to show us those stairs going down, Asante told Francis. We need to get a good look at what we're dealing with. Francis heaved one of the floodlights across the foyer, careful not to drag it and scratch up the floor. I'm sorry, I dropped the flashlight, Dr. Asante. Don't mention it, Asante said, patting the other woman on the shoulder. More wonders than heaven and earth, Francis. What do you think that was? Sal asked Asante. A construct, maybe, like the hands homunculus or Mr. Norse's servant. It would make sense for Team Four not to leave their work unprotected. I should have expected something like who do you think are the masters? Sister Teresa asked Asante. Sal looked between the two of them. Masters? The construct's last words. Teresa bit her lip. It said, the masters will know. But who did it mean? Asante gave her a quelling look. No idea, but we have one way to find out. Wait, wheels turned in Sal's head. There's no way, I mean... Team four is definitely gone, right? They can't possibly still be. Francis turned the floodlight on with a loud thunk. The space beyond the door lit up, or some of it did. It was a yawning emptiness crossed with stairs and narrow walkways. They arched sideways, upside down, 
meeting at impossible angles. Looking too closely at some of the junctions gave Sal a sharp headache, like an ice pick right between the eyes. A faint fluttering sound came from somewhere inside and then subsided. They stared at the tableau in silence for some moments. Then Sal turned to Asante. I think we'll need the rest of the team. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Two. Sal slipped into Grace's room. The apartment had changed a little since her last visit. It was still Spartan, on the whole. The standard-issue convent furniture, the white plain walls, the unlit candle, the match standing at the ready, the sleeping woman. Now, though, there was something stuck in the frame of the mirror. Sal slipped over to look. It was a photograph of the team dressed to the nines, tails and sparkles and sharp shoes, the night of the yacht party back on Rhodes. Damn, they'd all looked good. Maybe a little tense, but given that they'd made it out alive and saved the world, it was a happy memory. She smiled. Sal struck the match and lit the candle. And just like that, Grace was there with her. She sat up in bed, a shadow of fear crossing over her face. Arturo, is he? He's fine, Sal reassured her. And he said he was very, very sorry, and he'll try to make it up to you. He sent me because we need you. He's stuck in a meeting with the Monsignors. Ah, just give me a moment. Grace crossed over to the mirror and straightened her hair, then pulled open the drawer of her night table. It was packed with the paraphernalia of modern womanhood, countless tubes and pots of creams and powders, a dozen or more brushes, an eyelash curler, a hair curler. There were even things in there Sal didn't have a name for. Sal whistled. That's a real nice collection you've got there. Grace colored faintly, 
but continued drawing a thick line of liquid liner, finishing with a neat cat eye. It changes so fast now, especially for me, but I miss it. What, fashion? Grace swept a rosy gloss onto her lips and pressed them together. Don't laugh. But why the new look? Grace tipped her head to the side and admired her work. An old look. I've lost enough time on wishful thinking and feeling sorry for myself. However much time I have, I'll spend it being myself. They found Liam and Asante waiting in the hall outside the Team 4 door. Francis and Teresa were halfway to Team 3's door, whispering to each other. Or rather, Sister Teresa was whispering to Francis, and Francis was determinedly not looking at Liam. Interesting. So had Teresa noticed Dr. Haddad uh, noticing Liam? Sal couldn't blame her, if so. The man was good looking. All that luminous skin, and he certainly kept in shape. Good thing their brief fling had ended and Sal wasn't the jealous type. She was so unjealous, in fact, that she favored Liam with an excessively warm smile. What? He asked. Nothing. Where are the others? Menchu joined them a moment later. The dark circles under his eyes had darkened the last few weeks, probably from the growing frequency of those meetings with the Monsignors. Dealing with the cascade of consequences of Team Two's fall from grace, no doubt. Menchu almost covered his double take at Grace's makeup. You slept well, he asked her. Fine, Arturo. She raised her chin, defiant. A wing of hair escaped to veil her cheek. Liam cleared his throat. Let's see what Team Four was up to, shall we? In the time that Sal had gone to wake up Grace, Asante and her ducklings had set up a staging area in Team Four's foyer. The cleaning supplies were stacked in the corners, and all trace of Ink Kong was gone. Not so much as a scrap or smear remained. Sal picked up a flashlight and some batteries and passed more on to the others. Father Manchu stared into the floodlit non-Euclidean landscape beyond the far door. He looked grim, his jaw clenched. You were right to call in the whole team. The chamber was dark and vast. Tiny lights twinkled in the expanse and vanished. There was only one constant in all that space, a golden beacon shining warm and bright from deep within the maze of twisting stairways. This, Liam said, is definitely not what I expected. He stared into Team Four's chamber, or whatever it was, his nostrils flaring. I thought it would be like a, a lab, you know? Flasks and tubes and jars with pickled demons inside. I would at least have expected some books, Asante said. Where are all the books? Where is all the anything? Sal asked. Or is this whole place just made of stairs? Only one way to find out. Asante stepped through the door, her flashlight cutting a wedge for them to follow. The rest trooped behind her, down a blessedly straight flight of steps. They were stone at first, but soon changed to wrought iron. There was no dust, Sal realized. No rust. The place was pristine. A shriek came from behind them. They turned back to see Sister Teresa silhouetted in the floodlight, waving at them wildly. She was also standing at a 70-degree angle, and so was the floodlight and the door. The flight of stairs had looped around without them even noticing. Wait, there's one more thing to take care of. Manchu went halfway back up. Sal's stomach twisted in synchrony with Manchu's progress. We don't know what we might stir up in here that could escape into the Vatican, he told the assistants. Go back out, close the door, and wait for us in the hall. If you hear or see anything out of the ordinary, alert Team One, no matter how insignificant it might seem. 
He paused. If we don't come back in, uh, let's call it one hour, then tell Monsignor on Julie. Who will also call Team One, Sal said. Perhaps, or perhaps he'd decide that a rescue mission would be unwise. Menchu folded his arms. Sister Teresa looked set to object, but Francis placed one hand on her arm, said, we'll do it, and backed the nun out into the hall. Francis's glasses glittered in the hallway lights before she shut the door into the Vatican. The clock is ticking, Menchu said. He turned and followed his team into the darkness. A scurrying noise came from somewhere outside their sweeping cones of light. Rats, Grace said. It sounded like metal. Sal shone her light toward the source of the noise, but saw only spider webs. This can't exist under the Vatican, can it? Liam asked. I mean, if this were really here, our archives would be. He shone a light off to the side. In this big empty spot right here, where there are more stairs, big surprise. Manchu took a deep breath. Well, he said, we knew coming into this that Team Four worked with magic. Stay alert and let's stay close together. We don't know what kinds of traps might be waiting here for the unwary trespasser. We're not trespassers, Asante protested. We're rightful society representatives. We belong here. And what did the construct think about that? Liam asked. There was a silence. This is not right. Liam stabbed at what might or might not have been the floor with his flashlight beam. He looked over the edge of a landing. The stairs were a little too narrow for comfort, a little too steep, and the fall led to far too much of nothing at all. I could have at least put rails in, he added, a bit plaintive. His voice didn't echo off the walls like it did in their own quarters. Here, the sound was simply swallowed up by the darkness. Sal heard a faint sound like fluttering, or maybe it was her own blood rushing in her ears. I guess building codes weren't invented yet, Sal told him. She didn't look over the edge. In fact, some parts of the Bible describe building codes, Asante said, including putting rails around the top of a flat roof so nobody can fall off. Good to know. Sal stared straight at her feet. One step, two steps, doing her level best to stay in the exact center of the staircase. Everyone check your shoelaces, they're all tied, okay? Liam snorted from behind her. Up ahead, Grace asked, where are we going? She looked at the stairs passing over their heads. And how do we get there? The only landmark I see is that light. Asante faced the golden beacon, glowing steadily and impossibly far away. We should try to figure out how to get there. Sal chanced to look across at a spiral stair a stone's throw away. Her stomach teetered, but she clamped it down. No time for that. She had a job to do. Should we go back and get ropes, uh, mountain climbing gear? In here, maybe gravity is what Team Four says it is. Asante trained her flashlight straight up and straight down. Neither ceiling nor floor was visible. It was as though these twisting stairways had been constructed in a void. And then they hit a wide platform where four sets of stairs led up and down in all directions. A web stretched between the two upbound staircases, reaching so far overhead that they couldn't see the whole thing with their flashlights. So that's exciting. Liam craned his neck to look at the set of steps passing 20 feet overhead. How are we supposed to search this place to find what we need? Or get out, he didn't say. Breadcrumbs, Sal joked. It doesn't look like we'll be able to draw a map, Menchu mused. Not one that would make sense. How did Team Four find their way around this place? Sal asked. We can't be sure that they did. 
Asante nodded again at the small sun. There aren't any reliable records of what happened to them, just centuries-old rumor and speculation. For all we know, this is the terrible thing that happened to them. Or perhaps they did it on purpose. There was a fluttering sound. It grew louder and closer from the moment they first heard it. A flock of something winged, darted, and swirled around a set of distant stairs. Grace shone her light at the creatures, but the shapes were too far out of range and too erratic to get a good look. They dipped and curved behind another stairway, then down, far below the platform the team stood upon. What are those things? Sal asked, nervous, but trying to keep it out of her voice. Bats? Demons, Liam suggested. He ran a knuckle under his earlobe. We really shouldn't be surprised to find demons here. I mean, there has to be a demon someplace to explain all this, right? Grace frowned at the flock. I don't think they're demons. The flock burst up from beneath them. Wings beat at their shoulders, an endless stream swarmed around their heads and passed. Bats! Sal covered her head with her arms and crouched low to stay out of the way. Liam and Manchu ducked down beside her. Grace, on the other hand, leaned out over the emptiness. So far, Sal was sure she must fall into the void and snatched one of the things from midair. Then she held it out in two hands with mingled distaste and bewilderment as the rest passed by and vanished. Not bats, books. It was a book, yes. A book twitching and struggling as if it were alive. The team exchanged horrified glances. Grace, are you? Grace frowned at the pages. It's not a magic book, at least I don't think so. It's Pope's An Essay on Man. The book trembled in her hands and emitted a terrible keening sound. Should we bag it? Sal asked. Menchu pointed to the receding flock. I don't think there are enough bags in the world for this place. One of the dim lights in the darkness brightened and lowered toward them from somewhere not quite overhead. It wasn't a firefly, nor was it a candle. It was an enormous clockwork spider. The spider was easily the size of a pony, but despite that, it hung from a strand of webbing fine enough that it slipped in and out of visibility. Eight eyes refracted the flashlight beams. Its legs and thorax were brass and crystal. The light glinted off razor-tipped legs and mandibles. Its glittering body held a sloshing reservoir of milky fluid glowing faintly in the dimness. It worked its mandibles to reveal a pair of needles as long as Liam's hands. Grace let go of the book. It burst away from her and back toward its flock. A single drop of fluid dripped from one of the spider's fangs and fell, steaming to the stairs. The fluid disappeared at once, but a spatter mark etched the stone where the fluid had fallen. Nice spider, Sal said low and quiet. We let the book go. Why don't you leave? Grace stretched out her hamstrings and then lowered herself into a crouch. I don't think so. The spider stepped onto a set of stairs. Its rear legs neatly cut the strand it had descended with. It moved toward them slowly, smoothly, inexorably. Sharp metal legs tapped with each step, and for a single hysterical moment, Sal thought it would make an excellent tap dancer. Move over, Michigan J-Frog. Grace crept toward the spider just as slowly, blocking the spider's route toward Asante and Manchu. Show me what you have. The spider lifted a blade-like leg carefully and then jabbed it toward Grace in a blur. Grace ducked, grabbed the limb with her hands flat on each side, and twisted it out of the joint. It came loose and fell clattering to the floor. Liam and Sal circled the spider from opposite directions, looking for an opening. How, Sal wondered, are you supposed to grapple with something basically made out of razor blades? 
Liam took off his jacket and put it on backwards, with the sleeves hanging over his hands. Ah, I like that. Sal did the same with her hoodie. The thick fabric wouldn't be razor-proof, but it was better than nothing. The spider made no sound of distress or anger. It slashed toward Grace with another leg, and this time caught her in the shoulder and knocked her down. It lowered its fangs for the kill. Liam grabbed at a hind leg and pulled, but it didn't come away. The spider shook the leg like it was trying to get something off its shoe. Grace rolled under the spider's abdomen, then twisted another leg away. She scurried off to the side, holding the limb in two hands like a baseball bat. Manchu pulled Asante back to the edge of the platform, farther out of danger. The spider turned toward Grace, meticulous, seemingly unhampered by its recent amputation. Grace used its own leg to bash it in the face. Two crystal eyes shattered on the first blow. Blood streamed down Grace's wrists from where her hands gripped the metal. She swung a second time. Another eye popped out and rolled off the side of the platform. Grace swung the spider's leg a third time, now a little lower. One of the spider's fangs snapped off at the root. Venom began to drip from it. But the leg had snapped too, leaving Grace holding only a twisted stub of metal. The spider settled low on its remaining legs, opened its mandibles wide, and jetted a fine spray of venom toward Grace. She turned her face away, blocked the spray with her arm and with its leg, but everything the spray touched sizzled. Grace dropped the remnants of the broken spider leg, darted forward, and twisted off another, as easy for her as twisting the cap off a bottle of soda. Sal lunged toward the spider and grabbed one of the thing's legs with her hoodie-wrapped hands. She tried to twist like Grace had, but she wasn't strong enough to pull the joint free. The fabric of her hoodie started coming apart where it met the edge of the blade. The spider lurched and tried to kick Sal away. Grace grunted, then bashed the thing a few more times with her new weapon. This leg proved a little more durable. The head of the spider sported deep dents and showers of flaked brass fell away. Venom drooled from its bent mandibles in a steady flow. Smoke billowed up from where the fluid fell. Push it, Sal shouted. Grace stepped back, and then Liam and Sal shoved the spider in unison. The spider fell forward into the growing puddle of its own poison. It twitched wildly, as dying bugs do. Grace twisted off a fourth leg, a fifth. She flung them away into the darkness. The spider stilled. I think we're about done here, Liam said mildly. He put his jacket back on the right way while Grace finished dismantling the spider's machinery. Sal and Liam grabbed their flashlights again. Menchu hurried to Grace's side, frowning over the already healing cuts on her hands. And stay out. Grace kicked the reservoir of milky venom over the edge. Asante watched it fall with some regret. I would have liked to get a better look. She bent to examine one of the remaining spider legs instead. Are you all right? Sal asked Grace. Grace wiped the blood from her hands under her pants. Piece of cake. There was a sharp click, so sharp it made Sal's fillings hurt. The world twisted and came apart into pieces. The place where Liam and Sal stood turned sideways and disappeared into a pocket of nothingness. The platform where Grace, Arturo, and Asante stood reassembled in a new configuration. But Liam and Sal fell into the void. Three. Sal and Liam fell toward a set of stairs perpendicular to the ones they'd started on. Sal reached out a hand to try to catch herself on the narrow end of a riser as she fell past it into the blackness. Instead, the two slid along a step, and then somehow sideways was down, and they stopped, like an arrow settling flat into the grass after a long flight. Liam's arm rested on Sal's thigh. 
He snatched it away and picked up his drop flashlight. Are you, uh, all right? He asked. Nothing broken, she said lightly. At least not yet. Sal got her feet under her and crouched, shaky, looking for the others. The gravity chains meant she couldn't tell where they'd fallen from. There, there, she could see their flashlights. From where she stood, it looked like they were sticking straight out from a wall. Hey, hey, over here, Sal called. Are you all right? Manchu's voice was faint. Can you get back up to us? His flashlight trained on them, so all Sal could see was a blinding circle. Do you mind aiming that somewhere else so we can see you? Sal asked, shielding her face with one arm. She tried to wrap her brain around the way the stairs wove and combined. I don't think we can get to you from here, she said. Liam stood up beside her. Nothing to climb on, he said. Wouldn't recommend you trying to jump down to us either. How much time do we have left? Sal asked. Maybe as long as we're separated, we should keep searching and you can go back and report what we're seeing in here. Manchu called back. Can't, he said. The stairs we took to get here are gone now. Liam looked at his phone. He tapped the screen a few times, frowning. This is, we've been in here for six hours. That can't be. Asante's voice carried to them, clear and worried. What happened to the doorway out? Sal tried to get her bearings. She could see the golden beacon they'd been following. It glowed the same as it had the whole time, warm and friendly. But the floodlight they'd left behind was gone. Did Team One shut us down? Sal asked. We haven't been in here that long. It's only been maybe 20 minutes, Father Menchu protested. I, my watch says it's been two hours. Liam looked back to his phone. I'd expect electronics to screw up around magic, but in your watch mechanical? Yes, unless there's something else at work, affecting time, too. Grace, do you feel different in here? Grace shrugged. Not really. So, we can't be sure how much time we have. Asante sighed. Damn. Sal sat down heavily on the stairs. Well, what do we do now? Grace shone her light under her face, like a kid about to tell a spooky story while camping. Go to the light. Did anybody ever make her watch Poltergeist? Sal muttered. Was that on purpose, or? We'll meet you there, Liam shouted. However long it takes. He turned toward Sal, but didn't look at her. Come on, just sitting there and gonna get us out of this. He trotted away up the stairs, the path that seemed to lead more toward the beacon. After a moment, Sal picked up her flashlight and followed. The stairs had changed several times as they climbed and descended. Iron, stone, wood, even lush carpet at one point. Sometimes, to Liam's relief, there was a banister of glossy wood or rough metal. Mostly, the edge led into nothingness. Marco! Sal called from time to time. Polo, Menchu answered back. Liam kept a wide distance from Sal as they walked together, wider even than the generous bubble of not sleeping with you anymore required. Sal ignored it as they crept upstairs and across bridges. His problem, not hers. They heard those skittering noises more than once. Apparently, there were plenty of spiders still hanging around. Worse, the webbing grew thicker and more frequent the farther into Team Four's headquarters they went. Marco, Sal shouted. This time, she didn't get an answer. Her thighs were starting to burn from the stairs. How many days does this excuse us from the gym, do you think? She asked. None. Liam frowned at an intersection. There weren't any paths that would lead them closer to the light. Wait, do you see that? 
He played the light over a gap in the stairwell. There was another platform some ten feet below them, and this one led straight to the beacon. You want to jump? Sal sized up the drop. That's a little far. We can make it. That's the best way. I can help you down. Sal nodded reluctantly. Fine. Liam sat at the edge of the abyss, then swung down to hang from his fingertips, the muscles in his shoulders bunching. He let go and dropped. He landed, not gracefully, not quietly, but safely, and motioned to Sal. Your turn. The stone was slick under her fingers. She eased one leg over the edge, then the other. She tried to get a solid grip, but instead she slid uncontrolled and dropped. She yelled as she fell. She struck Liam on her way down. He held out his arms trying to break her fall, but instead both of them reeled and crumpled, then tumbled several more steps before they could stop themselves. Sal rubbed her elbow, her hip, laughing hysterically. That was not a good idea. Liam stood, his dignity, the most injured part of him. Let's just keep moving. Before long, they passed through a curtain of webbing and finally reached a room. Or a place that would pass for a room, anyway, if it had walls or ceilings. As things stood, it was more like a collection of furniture perched on a platform mysteriously suspended in empty space. From the look of the furniture, the room was something like a dormitory. Rows and rows of short, narrow beds squatted in neat ranks, each with its own neatly folded blanket and a flat pillow. Each one had a little chest at the foot. Sal ran a hand along one of the blankets. It was made of coarse-woven wool dyed brown, rough against her fingertips. Quills poked through the fabric of more than one pillow. I guess Team Four didn't believe in living the high life, she observed. You'd have fit right in, Liam. He shrugged off her little barb. No shame fitting in with men of principle. Sal sat on a bed for a moment and flexed her toes. I'm feeling the burn a little too much. Let's take a rest. Liam sat a few rows away from her, his back completely straight. This place looks like they were expecting to come back any time, Liam said at last. It's waiting for you to lie down and close your eyes. Sal opened the chest for her bunk. It held a robe made from the same fabric as the blanket, a wooden bowl, and a well-worn prayer book. Sal assessed the book, wondering if it would be safe to pick up, to even touch. Don't, Liam warned her. Before Sal could shape a retort, the book flipped open on its own, the pages flexing like a newly emerged butterfly's wings. She thumped the lid of the chest closed before it could escape. They stared at each other for a moment, their silence punctuated by the tapping sounds of the book trying to escape and fly to join its migrating kindred. Liam, Sal said at last, what if this is the library? What if all their books are up in the air like that? He flexed his hands. Then we're in trouble, he said. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Many of us have heard of the legend of Zorro, but you may be less familiar with Joaquin Murrieta, the very real man behind the legend. Realm's newest podcast, Blood and Gold, starring Emmy-nominated actor Richard Cabral, tells Joaquin's tale. To some, he was a hero, to others, a villain. But before all the action, Joaquin Murrieta was just a young man in love who believed anything was possible. When the irresistible dream of the California gold rush quickly turns into his nightmare, Joaquin takes up the life of an outlaw. 
one determined to strike back at his oppressors and become a leader and avenger for his people. For fans of Deadwood and Desperado, Blood and Gold is a Western legend that provides an important perspective on events in American history. It's based on a novel of the same name that was co-written by Peter Murrieta, one of Joaquin Murrieta's descendants. Learn more about Blood and Gold at realm.fm, and be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.